This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Were the films of the 1980s plagued with urban legends? Or is that just a conspiracy theory? Put on your tinfoil hat and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of urban legends. That's right. Huh. Legends in our old, on our own urbans or suburbans, suburban legends now, I guess. Ah, uh, yeah. That's a better one. Change it to suburban. Suburban legends. It can mean so many things. Sub and suburban. It's like that guy that cuts the grass every day. The legend, the legend of the old dude who cuts the grass, the suburban legend. No, I don't know that. He's re- you've never seen the retired guy. Is this the, tr- you're the, talking about in our own neighborhood here? No, no, it's the the suburban legend of the guy oh. who's retired and cuts his grass every day. And if you step on his grass, you just disappear. Oh no, no, wasn't that your neighbor Norm, <laughs> the guy you chased out of the neighborhood? <laughs> I didn't chase him out. Oh, okay. Hey, my name is Will, and joining me as always in chasing people out of the neighborhood only occasionally is my friend and my co-host. Ray, how are we doing today? Good, very good. I'm very excited to be past Macbeth, which went very well. We raised uh, ten thousand dollars for the Actors Fund, uh, and the show turned out very good. But to, hey, I'm glad to be free and focus solely on the podcast <laughs> now and speak with you. See, today on the show, we're going to be talking about urban legends, which are now known as conspiracy theories. But when we were kids, they were urban legends, right? I think that's the same idea. Mm-hmm. Just, and I'm going to present to you and the audience a number of different urban legends and connections with 1980s movies. But All right. But before we do that, hey, folks, remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, comment, find us on Facebook, join us there. That's mostly where we are. You could follow us on Twitter and Instagram if you want, but, you know, Facebook's the place to be for older folks. Um, go to T Public yeah. and get yourself a bunch of stickers oh, and then yeah. go put them on stop signs around town. Oh, you know, we had some folks buy t-shirts and magnets this past week or so. Hey, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, so they must be listening to you. My my, my subtle subliminal messages are working. Mm-hmm. And hey, you know what you do also? You get one of the, you probably have to look at, maybe you don't remember, or maybe get the instructions on the internet. You get a sheet of paper, you fold it into a square, and you fold it a number of different ways, and you make one of those, uh, what are they call fortune tellers. The, the frog mouth thing? Yeah. Then you have a friend pick a color and a number, but all of them underneath them say, listen to the idiots, right? <laughs> yeah. Just let them do it once. If you do it more than once, then they're going to be on to it. But that, just like an old school way of uh, texting, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Either I'm speaking really slowly or it's just, it's just the energy level where I'm at. Hmm. Well, we'll work on it. Okay. Let's, let's do this. Let's All get right. some 80s news going. There's tons of 80s news to talk about this week, and it seems like a whole lot of it has to do with bringing back some of our favorites from the 1980s in new ways today. So first up, we have learned more about, and this is something we first learned about a while ago, but uh, I think maybe there was a question as to whether or not the originator, the creator of the Hellraiser series would be involved in any of the new uh, adaptations, reboots of it, and we have learned 
this is just in time for Halloween, just a, you know, a week or so ago, that Clive Barker will be involved in HBO's series, which is going to adapt his Hellraiser stories, with uh, David Gordon Green directing some of the early episodes. So I don't know if you remember, but we talked about this months ago now, probably, but there is a Hellraiser reboot film coming, and to our knowledge, at least in the articles that we, at the time we had read them, no mention of Clive Barker whatsoever. Yeah, it sounds like he's doing the TV show, but not the movies. Yeah, so... And hey, TV shows, you know, TV shows these days are a great medium for a lot of storytelling because he can unfold something over time. So it could work out better that way for him, for us. So this is coming from Deadline reporting this based on Hellraiser horrors, the horror franchise, of course, by Clive Barker, uh, his novel and the Clive Barker novel, The Hellbound Heart. It's planned as an elevated continuation of the existing Hellraiser mythology. So guess uh, building off of that, maybe it'll be that mix of old and new that's been sort of popular among folks that grew up with these different properties that they're now rebooting. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the continuation. I don't like the reboot, as you know. So Um, I'm sure one way or another, the movie is going to end up with Rob Zombie attached to it somehow. That's my guess. Mm. It's just a guess. I don't know for sure. But if I'm guessing who they would give Hellraiser to, it's going to be him. So I think the TV show is going to be much better. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, if you've got Clive Barker definitely involved, of course. I mean, that would be the hope. It'll help steer it in a way that's consistent with his books and and, and the prior films. When I was young, you know, I read Stephen King and I read Clive Barker eventually. Uh, very different writers. Um, I think Clive Barker between the two would creep me out more in the way his, not that his storytelling was necessarily different, but maybe the subject matter or the stories they unfolded were darker and more gruesome in a way that Stephen King's, as scary as they could be, weren't, you know? I appreciate that Stephen King didn't use a, a ton of big words. Mm. He was more easy to read. Mm. Oh, I lo- yeah, Stephen King's a great I I writer. didn't need the, the, the dictionary or the Thoris when I was reading <laughs> Stephen King. And is that what you did with Clive Barker? Yeah, sometimes. Mm. It's those Brits. They're just so much smarter than the rest of us. Yeah. There I am at my thesaurus looking up crumpets. <laughs> well, why didn't you just say, oh, now I didn't know what a crumpet is. I guess to make this joke, I'd have to first look it up. Why didn't you just say pastry, biscuit? I don't know. Hey, in other 80s news, and again, here's another property of ours maybe coming uh, uh, to a theater near us one day. Um, you know, they say Goonies never die. And uh, never say die, rather. And Adam F. Goldberg of The Goldbergs, you know, the gentleman who created the TV show, which is, you know, episode after episode, a love letter to the 1980s, set in the 1980s, uh, once first pitched 15 years ago uh, an idea for Goonies 2 to uh, Goonies director Richard Donner himself, only to be turned down, and has not given up. So just recently we learned, just last week, that he has... Reinvigor- he's reinvigorated that sitting at home in the pandemic, he's really charged him up being able to plan again another way to pitch this to Richard Donner. This time he's assisted by some uh, artwork, that a concept art that was, was drawn by Michael Barnard, who also worked on uh, the Garbage Pail Kids art. I'm not sure if that means the cards or the film, but uh, I did read that on SlashFilm.com. He, uh, Adam F. Goldberg said that he was waiting, you know, I guess to be able to meet with Richard Donner in person, but he couldn't take it any longer. And so <laughs> pandemic be damned, he set up a Zoom meeting and which was set to uh, be just uh, last week, last Friday, uh, it was uh, October 30th. So I don't know, you follow Adam F. Goldberg uh, and you love that show. Any news about that since? Have we heard about? Uh, 
Yeah, I haven't heard any updates about what happened. I, uh, I'm i assuming they were doing virtual high fives <laughs> and checks were being written and because I really want this to happen with Mr. Goldberg because his show is fantastic. There's there's not a bad episode of that show, not one. And if somebody could pull off Goonies too, it's going to be him. Yeah. Well, I guess we certainly know in the very least it would have that connection, that love for the decade, uh, you know, for the 80s, where in which the, the original film came out. The, the artwork that he shared, Adam F. Goldberg, that he said he was using in this pitch meeting, I don't know, there may be some other pictures that were drawn for it, but this, this one image from Michael Barnard seems to give some clues into, you know, maybe what's going on or maybe what's in his story in the sequel. And folks, you should just look it up or we'll put it on our Facebook page. But it shows an image of the organ uh, that they had to play in order to be able to get past one of the traps. But it looks like now it's in a museum or a museum has been built maybe where the organ was probably looks more like that and now you can tour it you can see there's a uh, like guardrails around it so you can safely visit the organ without falling <laughs> into your death you know where um data had to save them with his right was that when he fell to no that was a different part of the film uh, mm -hmm. when his uh jaws of whatever pincers of peril <laughs> right something like that pincers something like of peril. That. um so it looks like there's a, a young girl who's visiting these these sites as if in a museum, but she has in her hand uh, the key, the skull key that they used with the three holes, ultimately, again, to unlock another part of the adventure. So, hmm. Oh, it says, uh, the, uh, oh, see, the, the, the sign in the museum says Bone Organ 1632. Uh, and there's a, there's a guardrail in front of her that says, do not climb. Um, oh, and there's a bridge to the right that says, that advertises Willie's Wild Water Slide. So, Hmm. Oh yeah, they do go down that slide. That's the final thing down into the where the boat is, where the ship is. Yeah, that when they escape from the bone piano, hmm. that's where they head. So it must be some kind of I don't know. Folks know about this. Obviously, the secret's out at the end of the film, even. And I guess there's more to be unraveled in his story that uh, One-Eyed Willie maybe left behind. Hey, another '80s news. We talked about this a while ago. I don't know if we said it exactly this way. I probably should have looked it up, but we talked about the possibility of Willow having another life. Um, and maybe we even talked about how it would make a better TV series, or maybe that would be one way to go about it, kind of like with the Hellraiser. Well, lo and behold, a Willow series has been greenlit at Disney Plus with the director of Crazy Rich Asians, John M. Chu, set to direct yeah, the pilot. Yeah, yeah. From what I've read, it says um, Warwick Davis will be involved. Mm hmm. But he will not be the main character at this point, from what right. I understand. Yeah, all I see here is it says it introduces all new characters to the enchanted realm of fairy queens and two-headed Ibersisk monsters and welcomes back its hero, Willow Ufgood, once, played once again by Warwick Davis. Yeah, so, yeah. No mention about Val Kilmer or, uh, hmm, don't tell me your name. Uh, hmm. The redhead? Did she have red hair? I guess she had reddish hair, yeah. Sonya? And they were married at one point, right? Val Kilmer in real life? Briefly for yeah. like a year or six months. Wow. When you're Val Kilmer, you just do what you want. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know if Val Kilmer feels that way these days, but yeah. I bet he still does. Um, he's Val Kilmer. He's Val Kilmer, and he could show up skinny and ripped at any moment, and you wouldn't be like surprised at all. Top Gun Maverick. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. New volleyball scene. Now, I got to say, do you think he actually would be ripped or he's uh, <laughs> CG'd? 
to look that way. They're going to do like they did in the movie 300 and spray paint. Kind of, yeah, kind of like um, Dead Men Tunnel Tales with Johnny Depp mm. when they did a really good job of making him look young again mm, right. in that movie <laughs> as compared to Tron with mm, with Jeff. Yeah, yeah, that was bad. Bad CG. But the Pirates Caribbean, obviously Disney money, they did a great job with that. So I'm assuming that uh, Val's getting ripped through CG. Yeah. Well, hmm. Yeah. Like, well, are you suggesting that this is not going to be set as long after the original story as it really has been? So he's going to have to look younger or they're just thinking like this kind of hero would still be in great shape. You know what? I think they set it in the, in a time frame that works for Val Kilmer to be older because Warwick looks like he always did. Oh yeah. If they do a, do a cameo at Val, if, if all that is, is a cameo, it would have to be set in the distant future. And plus, I mean, how many times, can the kingdom be in jeopardy? Yeah. You know, you play Dungeons and Dragons, there's a catastrophic event every week for your characters to yeah. solve. That could be fun. Yeah. You know, it'd be like a lighthearted, uh, what is that Winter is Coming show that just ended? Oh, Game of Thrones? Yeah. It's like if Game of Thrones was written by a, a comedy writer like Mel Brooks. Yeah. You know, the, speaking of writers, it's uh, the pilot was written by Jonathan Kasdan, who is, you know, f- son of legendary screenwriter and director Lawrence Kasdan. Uh, who wrote, uh, he wrote Solo. That's one of the films he recently did. Uh, of course, Solo, who was, which was ultimately directed by Ron Howard. Also, Ron Howard also directed the original film, Willow. Oh, Joanne Whaley. Joanne Whaley. It says here, Joanne Whaley. That's her. That's whose name I couldn't remember. Uh, in other 80s news, hope you're not sick of finding out about old properties that may be new again. We got some good news again. I, th- I think this is good news so far anyway. That even though we haven't heard about it in a few years, it seems like the sequel to our 1980s cult sci-fi film, one of our favorites, The Last Starfighter, is still moving forward. Uh, We had last seen uh, Jonathan Betchel, the writer of the original film, pitching just a few years ago. Hey, we're working on this. And he sent some, he had tweeted like some some concept art and then nothing. It just disappeared. Uh, I think even at the time he had teased that he was working with the co-writer of uh, Rogue One, uh, Gary Witta. Uh, well, it turns out he uh, recently made it uh, made a clarification that, quote, it looks like we'll be making the deal to get it going, Betchel said. And adding some further detail to this, he confirmed that Gary Witta is still working on it with him, that they'll be writing the script together, uh, even though it's been taking a long time. Part of the challenge was he had to recapture the rights to the film, but it seems like that is happening as well. So even though it took them uh, through some uh, obstacles to be able to get it, they're moving forward. And he clarifies, this is not going to be a series, which is what some folks were speculating. It's going to be a film with, as he says, all the bells and whistles. And the story is going to be, uh, I guess, evolve, involve or be a revolve around Alex Rogan and, oh boy, CMS's character, Maggie, <laughs> Maggie, mm-hmm. and their kids. So they're grown up now, they're adults, and now they have kids. Hmm. Uh-oh. Skeptical. Skeptical on that one. He says this his story is going to be about, quote, passing the torch or the joystick. I'd prefer he just keep it, go back into space, and his kids be like, where's daddy? <laughs> Wait, so Maggie's on the planet. Somehow she... Yeah, th- somehow they're back on Earth, mm. and they, like, take him away, and the kids are like, where'd he go? And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, I had to go to work, hopefully saving the world. I'm wondering if you're suggesting, like, you know, he and Maggie were intimate before he went to space. She's pregnant. He leaves, you know, uh, with hmm. uh, Greg. Hasn't been back since. Oh. So it's been 40 years now. He comes oh. back. Maggie's this is a good angle. 40 years older. His kids, he's got kids in their 40s now. 
Their and kids he, are the ones playing the video games. And he's he, a great and granddad. He, and he basically goes, hey, I know you like Earth and all, but guess what? Yep. You're out of here. You got to go like do what I did. It's our legacy. I thought you were suggesting that he comes to Earth. She's like, where have you been? We've got kids. And he's like, you know, I have to go and defeat the alien armada again. Yeah. And then he gets right back in the ship and leaves. He wouldn't do that. And he, in fact, took Maggie with him. So, yeah, But he would leave the clone behind to keep her company. Mm, so that's nice of him. Beta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the beta unit. But, uh, yeah, actually, that's a perfect name for that, too, beta. by the way. <laughs> uh, nowadays, I suppose, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, he, it's, I, I forgot Maggie went with him. What am I thinking? Maggie went with him, of course. I don't know. Maybe they're going to be in outer space. I have no idea what they're doing with this one. Yeah. Well, the one thing, one of the things he does say, which is, hmm, maybe it's, I don't say it's troubling, but uh, he leaves a little bit of a concern or question. He says, quote, it's not a time capsule of the 80s by any means, which I guess that's fine. He says, we're taking it to the next level. So I guess you don't want, to, you don't want an exact redo of... The old film, but no, you uh, once again, Bill and Ted, their new movie is not an, a redo of the eighties. That's true. That's a good example. And that movie was fantastic. So yeah. maybe they learned something from what they did. Would you say that took things to the, another level? Bill and Ted oh, face music. It, absolutely. It took everything to a new level for those characters yep. in that franchise. Yeah, I agree. Hey, look, we'll remain optimistic about all four of these franchises until we See otherwise, and then Ray will be the first to let you know it sucks. And, yeah. And, and I'll be right behind them. If they're bad, I, I will tear them apart. Yes. I have no problem with that. And they'll deserve it because they'll know the second day of filming, if it's bad, mm. that they should have stopped. Yeah. Don't you sometimes you see these trailers even, and you think, well, you could pay me a small amount of money. Just show me a small clip of the film, and I could tell you, shut it down. Yeah, they could basically just pitch the idea there you go. to like the average citizen. Mm. It's like they find these focus groups and they just pick like the people who are so easily amused. Mm. It's like, hey, what do you think of peanut butter? And they just laugh hysterically and talk about how much they love it. And they're like, we got a movie to show you. <laughs> the peanut butter movie? Any movie. <laughs> Twix coming to a theater near you. <laughs> I mean, beyond the concession stand, it's also in the screens. <laughs> yeah. That was the 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. <sighs> and as Derek Wilson said a couple of weeks ago, good. <laughs> that's over? I don't know. Hey, today on the show, uh, we're going to be talking about urgent, urban legends, rather, of 1980s films. So, you know, today, you know, we hear a lot about fake news, and some of it really is fake news. And other times, people just call things fake news when they don't like the news, because it's bad news to them. But this is not a new thing. Spreading it around on Facebook and Twitter, that's new. In the old days, you had to find it out from a friend who said, did you hear this about, uh, you know, such and such? And it would spread like wildfire, or it wouldn't. Because uh, <laughs> I tried to start some rumors in my neighborhood. They didn't go very far at all. Hmm. So anyway, but there's a number of these that were in that, that urban legends that we had heard as we were kids and still persist to this day in connection with 1980s films. So I'm going to run these by you, Ray, and I'm going to uh, you know, figure out, you're familiar with most of these, I think. Toss them out. See what, you, what your understanding is today as to whether, you know, the truth, uh, whether they're true or false, uh, and you let me know your thoughts about that. I, I absolutely love this kind of stuff, so this should be good. So, you know, and folks, this is what we're talking about. This is one that doesn't count. You remember that story about the Wizard of Oz, where apparently a munchkin committed suicide and hung himself during the filming, and a tree in the back, and nobody mm -hmm. knew this until the film came out, and like 50 years later in the 80s, or whenever it was, we discovered it, and now we knew. Maybe because yeah. it was on tape, videotape for the first time. Well... That turns out to be false. That wasn't actually a person. It was actually a, a bird 
that was there that uh, the Los Angeles Zoo had lent the production and they had it on a tree or something like that. That's what they want you to yeah. believe. Well, oh, okay. Oh, actually, no, I do have a note here. It says that the urban legend with Wizard of Oz started when it was released on VHS in the 1980s. So there you go. Look at that. That even started in the 1980s. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Here's the first one. Everybody's heard this one, right? The three men and a baby's baby <laughs> ghost. Yeah. Yeah. So three men and a baby came out in 1987. And here's the urban legend. After the movie was released on VHS, a legend emerged about the about the movie. About an hour into the film, Ted Danson's character is uh, walking through his uh, home with his mother, the actress who plays his mother, uh, with, with his new baby girl, you know, that he has now taken responsibility for with his uh, two roommates. And in the background, you see a mysterious figure behind the curtains of one of the windows. The legend is, the urban legend is that that figure was actually the ghost of a boy who used to live in the house where they filmed the movie, and he was a ghost there haunting the, the home because earlier he had committed suicide, which is also the reason the, film, the house was vacant and available for them to use as a filming location. What do you think? True or false? Well, this one's false. There wasn't a ghost? No, I wish there was, and I wish okay. he was haunting this movie for being bad. Oh, no, I like that movie. But I think that's one of the, the people on the crew's kid or something mm. who actually got into a shot. So it turns out the mysterious figure behind the curtain is actually a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson himself, <laughs> <laughs> dressed in a top hat and, and tails. And it was a, a prop. If you remember, he plays an actor in the movie. Um, it's a prop. I don't know if it's a connection with one of his characters, his, his character, the actor played, but it's from a storyline that actually was scrapped from the movie. So it makes no sense to us that he was there. We wouldn't otherwise know it. But part of the reason it seems that this rumor even persisted after the, you know, it came out on tape was, as you know, the quality, you own a lot of the VHS tapes, the quality is not the same resolution as it, things are today. So it was easy. To, it was hard to make out what it was. Yeah. If you, if you watch it today on HD, you could tell it's Ted Danson, no problem. A side note, this idea that the house was available because a, a kid committed suicide there, the house is actually not a real house. It was a set, uh, or a house built on a set, uh, on a soundstage in Toronto. Yeah, there's nothing haunted in Toronto. <laughs> okay, here's, number, here's another one for you. Are you familiar with the film named Atuk? Oh, Atuk, yes, I am familiar with this one. <laughs> this one, this one's pretty scary. So the urban legend is that, uh, so in 1971, uh, legendary director uh, Norman Jewison purchased the rights to adapt a book from the 60s called The Incomparable Atuk, which is a satirical novel by an author named Mordecai Rickler. And the, the urban legend is that anybody who was cast to star in the film had an untimely death. Yeah. Anytime you make a movie, well, you try to make a movie about an Eskimo in the city, <laughs> bad things are going to happen. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. So, Yeah. Uh, the film was supposed to be this sort of fish out of water thing uh, with yeah. a, a native Canadian, uh, is the, the book, but you're right. They changed it to an Alaskan uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Inuit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe it starts with, uh, with Belushi. Yeah. In, in 19, so they were, they were about to shoot it. Uh, he first, uh, John Belushi first read the role of a took beginning in 82. He immediately expressed interest in the project and was set to play the character. And just a few months later in March, uh, he was found dead at the Chateau Marmont in uh, Hollywood. And then I think John Candy's next. Well, um, hmm. As far as who was actually cast, I don't know. The next stop, as far as I know, is that they actually, the only time they ever began production on this film was in 1988, in February, when they had cast Sam Kinison. Ah, I forgot Sam. Yeah. 
And yeah, Sam's next. They, they, they only worked on production for eight days when uh, they, Sam Kinison was at odds with the movie studio saying that he was promised creative control. And so they were butting heads on this with uh, the studio trying to accommodate Kinison, but Kinison getting more difficult and ultimately them severing their relationship with United Artists filing a lawsuit against, against Kinison saying that he was intentionally trying to sabotage the film. Of course, he died tragically also in 1992 in a car accident. He was only mm-hmm. 38 years old at the time. Isn't yeah. That's shocking. Jeez. Hit by a drunk driver, I do believe. Yeah. We're outliving yeah. our, you know, heroes here. Yeah, that's that's not good. And then John Candy's next. He died in 1994. And then you get uh, Farley. That's right. Chris Farley yeah. also was attached to the film at one point, and he passed away again, tragically, unfortunately, in 1997. The film today, to date, has never been made. No one's trying to make this movie anymore. <laughs> no one else will even audition for it at this point. Yeah. I, I read, especially if, if mm-hmm. especially if you're a fat guy in Hollywood, oh. you're not going anywhere near this thing. Yeah, I read some, you know, some version of this this uh, urban legend that said that it was anybody who read the script or was in the room with someone who read the <laughs> script, and they used this to pull in Phil Hartman, who said that he was uh, he was with Chris Farley or when he read the script or something like that. Yeah, I've heard the rumors on that one too, but I think that's all that one is, is rumors. Yeah, you can't really, I guess I can't really ask you true or false, is it really a curse? Is it really cursed? But man, that movie's got some death attached to it. Yeah, I wonder if anybody would be, uh, will be willing to be cast in it at this point. I would. You would, I'll take, right. my, I'll take my chances. Hollywood, you heard it. Norman Jewison? Yeah. I don't know if yeah. he's still around or making movies. I should know that, sir. I apologize, but. I've been working on getting fat so I can look like these guys and. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I've been working on dying tragically. Okay. Oh, uh, no, no. Right, fat, uh, the movie, fat, yes. <laughs> once I get the movie part, that'll take care of that. <laughs> yes, that'll take care of that, right. Okay, here, urban legend number three. Jessica Rabbit goes basic instinct in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Hmm. So if you remember this, um, there's a there's a scene where she and uh, the police officer character, the detective, oh boy, Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins yes. plays uh, the detective. And um, they're in the car together, that cartoon car. And like right before they get to the cartoon town, mm-hmm. you would never believe I watched this movie just a couple months ago. Right before they get into an accident and the car, they sends them flying out of the car. Jessica Rabbit spins around a couple of times. And there is the urban legend is there's a shot where she's facing forward. She's all Sharon stoning it with all of her, uh, you know, with her. With her rabbit's fur hanging oh, out. Oh, yes. Yes. So true or false? I'm going to go false on that one. You're right. Yes. She is thrown from the car. Her legs do open to reveal more than she's, you know, would be comfortable probably sharing. Uh, but it's it's not a full-on basic instinct. Um, actually, what you see is probably would be her undergarments. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, this is, there's probably a worse scene that was cut from the film, a more scandalous one, which had the cigar-smoking baby. If you remember, he's uh, he has a woman taking care of him who's very attractive, at one point, they cut out this part where he's he's seen peeking and poking under her skirt. So, okay, I'm curious if you heard of this next one or not because you have a wide uh, knowledge uh, of of different films from the 1980s. Yeah, I cast I cast a wide net yeah. on things that don't matter mm. in real life. Mm. So let's see how I do it okay. this way. And this one happens to be in a genre that's uh, along the lines of horror. Okay. This urban legend is that the film Guinea Pig 2, called Flower of Flesh and Blood, is actually a snuff film. So in 1985, Guinea Pig mm-hmm. 2, Flower of Flesh and Blood, which shows a modern-day samurai methodically torture, kill, and dismember a young woman in a secret lair, is real. 
That's the urban legend. In fact, in 1991, after Charlie Sheen received a copy of this film, he was so convinced that he was seeing actual footage of a murder, he reported it to the FBI, who confiscated his copy of the movie and launched, launched a full inquiry into it. Hmm. So, was Guinea Pig 2, Flower of Flesh and Blood, an actual snuff film? I'm going to go with no, because Charlie was probably on a lot of drugs <laughs> at the time. <laughs> it's actually a cartoon, even. He's turning in. It, he, he might not have been watching that. Giving him a copy of Akira. They blew up Japan. Yeah, he's just giving him a copy. He has him a copy of like, I don't know, Ferris Bueller. This kid really wasn't in school. He needs a <laughs> truancy officer. Yeah. Well, you're right. Yes, it, is, it wasn't true. This is sort of along the lines of cannibal holocaust. There's a similar urban legend in connection with that. Yeah. And even Faces of Death, if you remember that, it turns out the director admitted ultimately he faked most of those things. There's only, I think, one, right. one thing that's real. Um, this, this film was actually written and directed by Hideshi Hino, Hope I'm getting that right. Based on his own manga comics. Uh, and it was only after the investigators that were looking into this at Charlie Sheen's prompting spoke with the individuals involved in the film and, and viewed some behind-the-scenes footage revealing how they, the gory special effects were made that they dropped the investigation. Imagine Charlie's surprise when they called him. Hey, Charlie, like, I just spoke to the actor yeah. that you think was murdered. You're, you're an idiot, dude. <laughs> you're an actor. And, uh, I mean, how did you fall for this? Here's a bonus urban legend for you that a copy of the film was found in the home of a man named uh, Sutomo Miyazaki, a serial killer who was known as the otaku murderer in Japan, who was behind the mm. kidnapping and murder of four young girls between 1988 and 1989. Figures. So true or false? You think it's true? They did find a copy of this uh, film. Actually, I, that sounds true to me. It is true. After his arrest in 1989, they found a copy of Guinea Pig 2 in his home. That does sound true. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to get into what he did to these poor young girls. They were very young and it's really terrible, but it does seem like he was, you know, imitating what he had seen in this film that, you know, fooled Charlie Sheen. On a side note, yeah. um, Faces of Death. Yeah. Is there a person alive who doesn't know the monkey scene? Yeah, I don't know. Because like that's, uh, I guess it... <sighs> It's a weird way to say it, but that's like the highlight of yeah, Faces of Yeah, that's right. Death. When you're a kid, that's the one that gets talked about the most. That's that's the one that you're talking about at school the second yes. you see it. And that's one of the ones that was faked, apparently. Yeah, obviously. Faked, but yeah. Well, at, the time, at the time, we fell yeah, for no it. No kidding, yeah. Oh my God, yes. That was horrible. Watch that movie. Then it quickly became with your friends. There's a sequel? Let's get the sequel out of the <laughs> rental store. We'll get all yeah. of them, all seven of them, or wherever they were. All right, so hey, for this next urban legend, which... I'm not going to really going to be able to pose to you true or false, but I wanted to play you a clip from uh, a 1989 uh, featurette that was released in connection with Back to the Future Part 2. The hoverboard is a board that hovers on magnetic energy, and it works just like a skateboard, except it doesn't have any wheels, and you don't have to have any pavement to hover on. And they've been around for years. It's just that parents' groups have not let the toy manufacturers make them, and we got our hands on some. And we put them in the movie. So I didn't recall this, but apparently in 1989, in connection with the, the film, Back to the Future Part Two, which features Marty McFly using a hoverboard in lieu of a skateboard when he goes to the future, children, you know, kids, teenagers, etc., us, were led to believe by Mr. Robert Zemeckis, who's the, on that clip there, and uh, Michael J. Fox, that hoverboards were real, including this uh, from this documentary, and that the only reason we weren't able to get them was because they were feared, the parents feared their children getting hurt. Do you remember hearing that? Actually, I do. Yep. And there's also a great episode of the Goldbergs on this topic. Is that right? 
Yeah, it's awesome. So, uh, yeah, this is fake. He's he's a he's the original troller right there. Yeah, yeah. You so, you know Tony Hawk tried to do the same thing to us a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, since we've talked about this uh, several months ago now, when we talked about tech, we were promised in the future, and whether uh, we got it or not. We talked about how there are some real hoverboards now that just you can't afford them. They're like you know fourteen thousand dollars. You need ten thousand dollars worth of uh, track and your whatever to fly. But yes, of course, this is fake. And Robert Zemeckis later admitted that all the flying sequences were faked with using <laughs> uh, you know practical and computer special effects. Yeah, I don't. Maybe I was too old to have been convinced that they were real at the time. Yeah, at the at the time it came out though, I don't remember hearing any of this stuff. This was after the fact that I heard him say all this yeah. stuff. So I definitely would have wanted a hoverboard. But my mom probably wouldn't have let me get one. No, I'd have had to ride my buddies. Yeah. And then you would have been holding onto the back of the car. Well, yeah, he'd have probably been driving and be like, yeah. well, if you're going to ride my hoverboard, you got to hold onto the yeah. back of the car. Okay. Hey, uh, here's another urban legend connected to a 1980s film. This is one is connected to 1980s The Shining. Ooh. And the urban legend is that The Shining is actually Stanley Kubrick's confession that he faked the moon landing. <laughs> you know what? I would love to say that's real. Yeah. But I'm going to have to go with false. You know, you're right. So I, you know, I had heard these stories before about uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, having been responsible for faking the moon landing. The idea being that uh, after he, he filmed uh, A Space Odyssey in 1968, the government approached, or this is how the story goes, the government approached him because they, they weren't able to achieve uh, you know, their mission of landing a man on the moon. And so they asked him, based on his expertise and knowledge of space, again, based on a fake film, uh, to fake their actual arrival on the moon. I had heard that part of it. What I had never heard was this even more bizarre thing was that hidden in The Shining are his are clues where he's admitting to having done that. We could do a whole episode on the things that people believe about <laughs> yeah. The Shining. Here's, here's the weird part about this one. There's a good probability or possibility yep. that the moon landing is fake. <laughs> okay, I'm listening. Okay, because if you look at the technology of the time... I, I, I know what you're going to say, man. I, man, yeah. it's tough to believe that they could put that thing on the moon. Uh, yeah. And when you think about it, Hollywood was... with. Uh, I've seen the footage. Yeah. But it's tough because you're looking at it like, how do you keep all these people from telling the truth for yeah. so long? Right. Uh, I hear you, man. There's Look, I've said this before on the show, and I say this to you privately. There's a number of things we have today, and I would say I'm generally not a conspiracy theorist or believe these kinds of things, but there's a number of technology we have today that I'm like, how can we really, how does this really work? Like cell phones. Roswell. Like, yeah. Roswell. Right. We talked to a Jerry uh, Jerry Clark about this. Yeah, I, I, I'm torn on the moon landing. I really am, because how come nobody else can do it but us? Well, that's not true. Other countries have been there. And no, I mean, like, on the surface. No, they've been there. Yeah, they've been there. How come I didn't see nothing on the news about it? Well, oh, because because yeah. I'm an American. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You don't know what's going on in other countries. I don't know what's going well, on. Well, in fact, you may not even realize this. And again, I only know this from researching whether you know to the. Well, this is what happened. I came across this urban legend. Then I read into you know what the the thing about the shining is, and then I thought, how do like you're saying, how do we know we went to the moon? <laughs> you know, because uh, I saw someone just conclude. You know, there's five decades of evidence that prove we la we landed on the moon on uh, July 20th, 1969. I'm like, really? What's the... E okay, so then I went down this rabbit hole. And there is a lot of mm -hmm. evidence. But I, one of the things I learned was I hadn't realized that we had gone to the moon six times uh, between 69 and 72, landing 
12 men on the moon. And what they explained, what they say is that uh, after, the, after the first time, people really start losing interest that they wouldn't even show it on TV. Like they would have one guy tells a story. I read that I think it was by the second or third landing they were showing it. And he was like really excited to see it. Cause he was a kid. And then they cut back to soap operas, you know, before they could <laughs> see anything important. He was watching general hospital. Like I just have a tough time with the technology that they had back then that oh. they could get a spaceship to the moon. It just, yeah. It just doesn't seem possible. And back and communicate with them. And yeah. It yeah. I mean, crazy. seriously, yeah. How are they communicating? Yeah. It's radio waves, man. I know I can't, my I daughter mean, and I at, can't get a walkie talkie to work in our house. And at, at that time, kids still thought two cans and a string yeah. could be used to talk to each other. Yeah. I, I, look again, simplest answer is often the explanation. I agree with you, man. I, I believe it happened, but it, I think it's hard to wrap your head around it. it is. Yeah. And, but, but I also think that people back then just had this tough guy thing where they're like, yeah, put me in it, fire the rockets and put me on the moon. That's true. Yes. Chuck Yeager comes to mind. It's just a different mentality. So uh, among the secrets that are hidden in The Shining that lets us know that Stanley Kubrick was involved in this includes the fact that uh, Danny Torrance, uh, you know, the uh, child actor played by, or the child character rather played by child actor Danny Lloyd, is seen wearing a knitted sweater that has the Apollo 11 rocket on the front of it. That's one clue, so now we know. There's also, remember that iconic carpet that's throughout the Overlook Hotel? Mm-hmm. that has been featured in other films and other references to it in other pop culture, that it resembles an aerial photograph of the launch pad of Apollo 11. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And finally, when Jack Torrance goes crazy at the end and is screaming about all the responsibilities put on his shoulders and... Uh, that he signed a contract to keep the secrets of the hotel. That's really Stanley Kubrick saying how his about talking about his relationship with the government and the moon landing having been faked. That's all a pretty big stretch. Yeah, there's there's a, a fascinating documentary. Again, we could do a whole episode on it called Room Two Thirty Seven, which examines all the different interpretations of The Shining and all the theories that folks have as to the secret messages that Kubrick put in there. And the moon landing is only like one of them. It's like a fraction of it. Mm. There's all these other mm. things. I thought it was interesting that they, they, they said they hired Stanley Kubrick to fake, the theory is, you know, they hired him to fake the moon landing because of his knowledge and ex- experience and expertise, which is demonstrated in space, uh, in uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. But when he features people walking on the moon in the movie, they're just walking like normally. Well, There's yeah. no gravity <laughs> issues. They're not. So, you know, I don't know that he's the, the greatest expert. That's him throwing people off the trail. Yeah. Okay. Hey. Then the last 80s film that has some urban legends connected to it, there's actually two. So here's the first uh, urban legend, and these are in connection with the 1982 film Poltergeist. Sweet. Poltergeist is regarded by many as maybe maybe the most famous or well-known cursed films of all times mm-hmm. because the, the film came out in 1982. Of course, it's about a, a suburban family who moves out to this uh, development who is suddenly, you know, shortly after moving in, terrorized by... by uh, Poltergeist, by a supernatural presence throughout the film. In the final sort of, or one of the climactic scenes towards the end, the mother, played by Joe Beth Williams, is, winds up being in, uh, in a pool that's been just dug out, so it's still surrounded by, you know, mud. The muddy walls start sort of collapsing in on her, and out from these, uh, from this, you know, dirt, are, are she's surrounded by skeletons. Uh, and ultimately yep. the, you know, the big uh, sort of... Uh, reveal at the end of the film is that they built this community on top of a former graveyard and they just removed the headstones, not the bodies. 
is a goddamn Indian graveyard. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you moved the headstones, but not the bodies. <laughs> Whatever. And um, the, the urban legend is that the film crew used real skeletons that they had to you know, retrieve from graves they had to desecrate themselves to get because they had a few dozen skeletons. And further goes on that as a result of this, a curse fell on the cast, which led to the tragic deaths of a number of the different actors involved in the, you know, in the, in the different films, including the young girl, Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, who gets captured by the poltergeist in the film. She, she actually died during the making of Poltergeist 3. Mm-hmm. And Dominique Dunn, who played uh, her older sister, who was murdered by a, a, a stalker or, or a former boyfriend when she was just uh, 22 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. old. Okay, so the urban legend, did they use real skeletons? <sighs> yes, they did use real skeletons because they were cheaper than making them, mm. uh, from what I remember. Right. So they did not dig them up themselves. I believe they bought them from medical yeah. supply companies, Yes, from what I remember. That's right. But um, yeah, this thing has a lot of death tied to it. Craig T. Nelson, you better be careful, buddy. <laughs> Watch your back. <laughs> Yeah, and whatever you do, Craig T. Nelson, don't get cast in a took because, I mean, that would be a <laughs> yeah. double whammy. You'd probably just explode but at that point. I think Coach is what saved him. Mm. Oh, broke the curse. You have a, like a it, hit TV broke show, the, breaks the curse. Yeah, well, when you get cast in a comedy, uh, once you get away from the horror, uh, I think that's what saves you. Yeah. That's where the other ones went wrong. You're right about the skeletons on, on all, all your points that you make there. And we learned this most, uh, and particularly from a, a special make a special effects, one of the makeup artists who worked on the film, Craig Reardon. In, in 1982, there was a, a, Reardon was deposed as part of a lawsuit where Spielberg was sued by screenwriters saying that the uh, production company Amblin had stolen uh, some of their ideas from a script they had pitched to Amblin. The suit was ultimately settled out of court, but Craig Reardon said uh, under oath, that quote, and this is regarding the skeletons, of course, that quote, I acquired a number of actual biological surgical skeletons. They're for hanging in classrooms and study. They are These are actual skeletons from people. I think the bones are acquired from India. Uh, at any rate, we got 13 of these and we dressed them so they looked not like bleached, clean, bolted together skeletons, but instead disintegrating cadavers, end quote. So yeah, they were real and you're right. They were from a medical place and they got about a dozen or so of them. Joe Beth Williams, who brought this up, you know, in a number of different interviews of the year since, said that, the use, when they found out they were, had used real skeletons, the, the, the crew and the cast, everybody was so freaked out that when they filmed a Poltergeist 2, they were still, they were still feeling uneasy about their experience that uh, co-star Will Sampson, who, you know, he was a member of the Muskegee uh, Nation, uh, the Creek Nation. He played the, uh, I don't know, he, I can't remember what exact role, but he, he plays the guy. So remember in Poltergeist 2, there's that old guy who's like the human embodiment of the ghost that's following them around now. And then there was this Native American guy who comes to help fight the ghost or exercise their home. She said that he actually performed an exorcism on the set of the film for to try to, you know, put people at yeah. sort of mind at ease. And, and, and we know how that worked out for him, huh? Oh, boy. Yeah, okay. So another guy who died. He died in 1987, I think shortly after that film was made. And it actually pulled through guys too, the guy who played the old guy, bad guy, he died too, but of stomach cancer, but apparently he knew he had stomach cancer even when he was cast in, in the film, or before he was cast in the film. So he had been battling it for two years prior to that. As a side note, Samson is uh, the actor who played uh, Chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's, Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Okay, here is the bonus in the final urban legend in connection with Poltergeist, a little more lighthearted one. And the urban legend is that although Toby Hooper is credited as the official director of the film, Steven Spielberg actually directed it. I disagreed. You, well, you know what? This is one that we're going to have to say, 
Who knows? You know what, though? This one's tough because I think maybe it was a little bit of both of them. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit of Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> a little Gators, Texas uh, Chainsaw 2. A little bit of. E.T. Jaws. E.T. I, 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 yeah. I think uh, a perfect example is when he's playing with the remote. Is yep. very Steven Spielberg. Where he's fighting with the neighbor. Yeah. And I think the clown under the, mm. the bed is very Hooper. I can see what you mean now. Yeah. Steven Spielberg's more of that sort of. Uh, you know, human stories, maybe more like uh, yeah. sort of the mundane uh, and Hooper's a more bizarre, out there, scary stuff. Yeah, and like them smoking dope in the bedroom is more Hooper. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the one of the sort of elements attached to this urban legend was one of the reasons Spielberg really directed is because Toby Hooper was on drugs at the time. So we've got information on both sides that weigh on both sides of this. On the side that says that Spielberg really directed it, we have an interview from... Uh, 2007. So in 2007, before she died, Zelda Rubenstein, or Rubenstein, she played the uh, exorcist, you know, mm-hmm. your house is clear. Mm-hmm. During an interview, she said that she only worked on the film for six days and Spielberg directed her at all of those days. So that's on the, on that side of it. Uh, in addition, also on that side is uh, a gentleman named John Leonetti, who uh, direct, he's a, now a film director in 2017, while he was promoting a film he just had come out called Wish Upon. During an interview, he was asked about this, and he said, Canned, quote, candidly, Steven Spielberg directed that movie, there's no question. However, Toby Hooper, I adore, I love that man so much, end quote. So that also on that side. And he, he went on to explain one of the other aspects of this urban legend is that the reason he did it, Spielberg directed it, was because there was a threat of a possible director strike, and so Toby Hooper had to be able to go on strike, and they wanted to be able to have the film continue somehow. This rumor, though, is not new. I was surprised to learn no. it started back in 1982 when the film came out because a lot of the promotional materials and interviews and newspapers, etc., focused on Spielberg and didn't even mention that Toby Hooper had directed it. In fact, it got so bad that uh, the Directors Guild got involved to investigate, not because they didn't think Toby Hooper directed it, but because they thought the movie studio was unfair in their promoting of the film. And they awarded Toby Hooper an additional $15,000 just to make up for him not getting the credit he deserved in these different uh, you know, promotional materials. Spielberg apparently felt so bad about it that back again in 1982 when the film came out, he penned an open letter to Toby <laughs> Hooper and had it published in the uh, Hollywood uh, Reporter saying, you know, essentially, hey, these rumors are out there. You directed it. You're awesome. Thanks for working to me. You, you know, you're great. Toby Hooper went on to work with Spielberg and direct a number of different projects for him in the years to come. Although he never liked talking about it, shortly before his death a few years ago, he said, I directed it. Spielberg produced it. Uh, those rumors were terrible, and you know. Yeah, I, I once again, I once again think um, the two of them worked on it together, yeah. and you can—I mean, you can just tell from the way the movie's made that it's not a—it's not completely a Spielberg movie. Yeah, it doesn't have that flavor. It just doesn't. Yeah. So I think Hooper had a lot to do with it, and whether he did the whole thing or not, I probably not. But if Spielberg's on set, are you really not going to let him help you? Yeah. He wrote I mean, it and what, produced it too. What kind of moron yeah. would tell him, hey, I got this. Yeah. Your ideas are stupid. Let me do this. Oh, uh, yeah. In the very least, you'd be intimidated to open your mouth, I think. Especially because this guy's giving Toby Hooper, who, you know, he, <laughs> yeah. he had made a name for himself in horror, but he wasn't like Jaws big right. or Closing Counters big. Right. So I, I think it was uh, both of them that made that movie. So, hey, and they made something special, that combination. Yeah. That's a good movie. 
So that's all the urban legends uh, from 1980s films I have for you today. I'm sure there's plenty of others mm-hmm. that we can investigate at some episode in the future. So I, I, I learned you a lot about that, but I don't know if we yeah. proved anything, though. We have proven oh. mm. beyond a shadow of a doubt okay. that if you're going to have tragedy in a movie, yeah. <laughs> you better have done it in the 1980s. <laughs> And we will talk to you next time on The 80s. See ya. See ya.